In 2012, Kiwi Tony McManus set a world record for the 60 to 64 age group, clocking a 451.85 mile. That record stood until late August when Dan King shattered the mark by nearly three seconds at the South Carolina Track Fest. Dan joins this episode and chronicles his record-breaking experience. Along the way, he shares nuggets of wisdom that runners of every age and skill level will appreciate. Here's Dan King and Mile 60 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Dan, welcome in. Thanks for joining Seconds Flat. How are you? I am great, Travis. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It is our pleasure. First of all, congratulations on the accomplishment. Must be feeling pretty good. It's amazing. Um, you know, you, you set a goal for yourself and when when they happen, you set a hard goal for yourself and when they happen, it's just like, it's just an incredible feeling. And it, it has a nice sort of a persisting quality to it as it turns out, which I really enjoyed. Uh, That's an interesting point. I want to hit that before we get into the questions, because you're right. Setting hard goals is a really beautiful thing. Setting the goal that you can easily attain doesn't come with that level of accomplishment. But you mentioned there the persisting feeling of having achieved that. I know sometimes we'll see folks that maybe they just, they want to run a marathon and they get through the marathon and, and it feels like such a great accomplishment. And then there's kind of a lull of what do I do next? Describe in your case, what that's been like of now a few weeks after a great accomplishment and still feeling really great about it. Well, um, in fairness, I had a little bit of that lull sense too. Um, It's really interesting. I have been, I've I've been a very goal-driven person as an adult in my life. Um, I definitely use goals um, in sport. I tried to even understand I'll call it the nuance and complexities of how to better apply them as an entrepreneur in my businesses or my business. And uh, I've found that they, they have an incredibly uh, moving quality for me in terms of how they drive my behavior. And then I, I especially uh, find benefit in the goals that are kind of stretched. They're just, well, it would be so awesome if I could do that, but it's absolutely not a certainty that I can do that. Um, and when I hit them, the, the feeling afterwards, just absolutely unbelievable. When I don't hit them, I'm usually kind of disappointed for a while, but then I go through a reflective process and I still appreciate everything about what I went through to try to achieve that goal. And so I get positive energy either way, but there's something just really different about that quality of feeling that you have when you set a really hard goal for yourself and you actually accomplish it. And, you know, this emotional lift, it just, you know, the joy that comes from it, you know, it just, it's amazing. You know, there's so much, um, so many people in my network, my personal network have reached out, you know, I've gotten a lot of local attention I've gotten a little bit of national attention and there's definitely, um, I'll call it a big dopamine buzz, you know, that kind of flows through your brain kind of day in and day out for a while. And then all of a sudden it's like, what's next, you know, and the what next is where that depression kind of kicked me a little bit. I was like, wow, this is what I've been striving for and I accomplished it and I have nothing else on my calendar the rest of this year and only 
possibilities next year because the world is sort of an uncertain place right now. So that was, that was kind of interesting. I went back and looked through my training log and realized that I was sort of just um, in a little bit of, I'll call it a, an aimless state for probably 10 days after South Carolina. That was, that was kind of a, kind of a curious thing for me to observe. We could probably go all day on the goal setting stuff because I love <laughs> listening to that. that. That is really valuable, but let's get to your race. South Carolina Track Fest, you run 449 for the mile for that age group world record. Maybe just a little bit of describing that day for us and, and how the race unfolded. It was, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, let's start with the morning. I got up and I was excited, but that race wasn't for about, I'll say, more than 12 hours. And that is just, that is just a stressful way to <laughs> to hang out. Um, and, and the one kind of, I'll call it nagging concern I had about the whole day was, um, this was in South Carolina at the end of August. And Laura had come up already through Louis Louisiana was was heading to the east. And as the week was approaching, I was looking at weather forecast and, you know, the the wind forecast was kind of variable for the week, but Saturday was supposed to be a pretty windy day. Um, at one point leading up to the race, it was 25 to 45 mile an hour winds um, it, during the day and, and 15 to 25 in the evening. And I was like, I'm not looking forward. To it. There's no record that's going to happen for me if I'm trying to run laps on a track in, in that kind of wind. So I was a little bit stressed about that. And then I had this long day to sort of kill. Um, the forecast the morning of the race was 15 to 25 during the day and then kind of calming down somewhat during the evening. Um, and it was a breezy day, but it wasn't crazy. Um, I kind of just hung out in my hotel. I was so antsy. I had to go just run a little bit on the treadmill in the morning. I went and did like two miles, just super easy, just to make sure that my body kind of remembered why I was there. And then I spent a fair amount of time also just going through a little bit of visualization exercises during the day. Um, one thing I've sort of learned about myself this year, which is kind of interesting since I'm now 61, is that I can really better prepare myself for the the things that might set me back in racing, if I just sort of work through a visualization exercise of just sort of dealing with them mentally real time, or not real time, but mentally dealing with them in advance of them actually happening. So like what can go wrong in racing, the wind, pacing, going out too slow, going out too fast, all those types of things. Um, and so I just sit down in kind of a quiet place and I just sort of see my, my race unfold in my mind's eye. And the other part of that um, is I have learned this year to just embrace the conversation, that inner voice that um, kind of encourages me to kind of back off a little bit because it's starting to feel very stressful and difficult. Um, you know, when the, when the suffering starts, the voice tells you to slow down. And, you know, how we all deal with that as an athlete is kind of interesting. But for me, what I've learned is that if it doesn't happen, it means I'm not running hard enough. So I just need to embrace it. I need to expect it. And I need to just be okay with the fact that that's just part of racing and then just get back to focusing on, on race form and, and pace. Yeah. That visualization is really valuable. I know as a marathoner myself, I'll go through that whole process, thinking my way through a whole marathon. And, you know, people that I travel to races with know that there's going to be like an hour in the evening where, we can't really communicate because I'm locked into that. It's a much longer process working your way all the way through. But I, I find 
taking yourself through that lead up to the event and all the things that you have to go through, walking through all of that mentally can be especially helpful in, as you said, reducing some of the stress once you actually get on the line. Moreover, I loved your, your comment about knowing that if I don't get to that place of some of that pain in the race, I probably haven't put myself out there in the best position to be ultimately successful, right? Exactly. That's exactly it. If that conversation, if that inner, if that inner dialogue doesn't even happen, then <clears throat> something else has sort of gone amiss with racing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it, it's a razor's edge though, right? You, you don't want to push yourself too far too soon. But yeah, if you haven't, right. if you haven't gotten to the red line, then maybe you didn't show up that day the way that you would hope. A lot of our listeners are in the Carolinas, so we know all too well about August weather and yeah. what you're facing with heat, humidity, a tropical storm coming through. With the other events that night, uh, you know, the, the sequence unfolding and seeing some other people race, did that help any in building confidence for you knowing that, okay, conditions are potentially good for me to run the race I wanted to run? A hundred percent. So to finish the the weather story, I was, I had lunch actually with the race director that day and I kept looking out the window. It was very breezy. You know, you could see the tops of the trees are just moving. But by the time um, I headed over to the venue, you could already feel just sort of like the energy of that was just dissipating. And then uh, when I got to the, to the track and you know, I got there plenty early so I could just watch all the preceding events and just sitting up in the stands, you could just feel, the energy of that had almost completely dissipated and what psychologically that was for me. And then watching the other races, it was clear that um, people were, were turning in incredibly good performances just all over the place. There were some shorter events, some uh, 400s, and then there was the, the men's pro mile, which was fantastic with Ollie Hoare. Um, and, you know, he was on pace to go 351 through through three quarters of that race and so by by that point I was I was just getting fired up and realizing that I got the day I was hoping for I was watching on uh on YouTube they had the the live stream of the evening we had one of our runners in the uh, in the pro mile and that Ollie Hoare performance was exceptional but even more than that just watching live track again was so exhilarating and did you build off some of that feeling too of knowing i'm actually in a competition i'm not just out here alone at the local track trying to put in a time trial i totally built off the energy of that it was so good for me to um to sort of be able to try to do this in that environment my race was a little weird because um you know it it was it was it had low low registration. And then amongst the registrants, um, there were some dropouts. Um, there were some people that changed uh, to different events. And by the time we got actually to race time, it was really going to just be me and, and pacing, pacing help and probably three people crossing the finish line at a sanctioned meet. But the energy was still just fantastic because it, it came on the heels of, uh, the men's mile. Basically there was one other event and then my race. And, uh, and I, you know, the, people that were there to watch the pro race they all stuck around um the athletes were mostly there and so you know i went up to the line and uh, dave milner because he knew why i was there the race director you know going for a for a mile record 
he really got um, people kind of up to speed on what my, you know, what this was about too, which created some great energy for it in basically announcing and keeping people posted as to the, the splits as I, um, as I proceeded through the race. So it was, it had just a kind of a surreal feeling actually there. It wasn't a huge um, bleacher of fans, but there were a smattering of people on both sides in bleachers. There were people standing around the track. There were a lot of athletes, um, you know, next to the track um, near the finish area. And I just totally fed off all that energy. It was awesome. So you're warming up, you're headed to the line for the gun. Is there a number in your mind at that point that you think this is the realistic goal I'm going for tonight? Well, my running this uh, leading up to this gave me confidence. I could run the world record time, which was just under 452. Right. So, and 452 is just over 72 second 400s. And so, you know, one of the, my, my primary pacer that agreed to pace me um, before we even went out was a guy named John Minan, who's actually from Boulder. He's actually my doctor too, which is kind of <laughs> funny. And he's a pro miler and he's a great human being. And um, he said, he'd be happy to, to pace me. And so we, but we didn't have a lot of conversation about it leading up to the race in terms of any kind of a strategy. I just said, Hey, I, I feel good. I can run 72 second 400s. So that's what I want. Just, just set a 400 pace of 72s and I'm just going to just stay relaxed and just stay right on that. And the gun, the gun went off and, and that, that was the pace. Um, I didn't have to think about the clock. I didn't have to think about a watch. I didn't even use my watch that, that day. And I just knew that if I were, if I was staying relaxed, staying with John, <clears throat> I was going to be able to just um, probably click off for 72 seconds and I wouldn't have to even, and I heard Dave Milner, announcing to the crowd that I was on pace. That was also very re reassuring. Just uh, one other point on that. I've had, you know, I did a lot of miles this year. It's, uh, it's sort of unusual, but I, I also now have a very good sense of how I feel going into, say, the third quarter if I'm on a pace that's sustainable or not. Because I've done a couple where I've gone out a little bit too hard and I couldn't maintain it through that, that third 400. And when I hit the, the 800 on this on pace, I was like, wow, this is my day. I've got this. I mean, I knew after 800 that I was going to be able to continue to run at that same level of, of output, that even though I knew it was going to get more difficult, but I, I just really had a strong sense that I was, I was doing something that was well within my capabilities. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Uh, I love knowing when uh, the runner feels like, okay, we've, we can do this today. And you know, having a couple second cushion there at the end, ultimately, I figured that you had to reach that moment of, of realization. So when you did get to 800 meters, and you just said, I know it's going to be tough, but I can run this pace. What are your mental and physical cues then for the last two laps on your way to 449? So it is probably a little past 800. It's probably more like at a thousand. That's when I, that's where at the thousand meter mark of a mile race um, or 1500 for me, if I'm on pace, I can feel whether I can sustain it or not. Because um, that just seems to be just, there's 600 to go. Um, so, so I just try to just stay as relaxed as I can at that point and maintain as good a running form. Because I've seen a lot of video and photos of myself in some of the other runs I've done this year. And when it breaks down, you know, it shows in my form. I start to over-rotate my torso. 
my arms get kind of sloppy. I, I tend to overstride a little bit. I start to go from sort of a midfoot um, stride to a little bit of a heel strike. And I've had, so, so I know that if, if I'm going to be on pace, I'm going to maintain good form through four laps, not through two and a half laps. My mental cue is just really dial in on staying tall, staying relaxed and running with really good form. And like I said, that mental, that inner voice conversation, have it, let it go and, uh, and just, you know, stay on task. Ideal cues, regardless of the distance we're racing, we can all refocus on those things in our own event. Your immediate reaction to hitting the mark when you cross the line. Oh, it was just a surreal feeling. I, you know, the, the pacers both, there was another uh, young guy named uh, Jackson Neff. I don't know if you know him, but he was, <laughs> he was also um, as part of my, uh, my party, let's say. And he and John both were like, you got this. They both yelled at me, you know, to hit the last, say, 130, 140 meters uh, to the finish line, knowing that we were well on pace uh, for that time. And then it was just driving for the finish line. The funny thing about my running is my all-out 100 meters isn't that different than my 400-meter pace. <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the, one of the, one of the, the, the interesting things about aging, aging runners is, you know, that gap between all out speed and something you can sustain just kind of shrinks over time. But so it was just, try, again, just focusing on form, trying to drive for the finish line, feeling good, knowing that the end was just right up there. And then getting through the line, I saw the, I saw that it was 449 on the, on the clock. And I was just like, oh my God, I cannot believe I just ran 449. And it's funny because that was, that was the visualization that I had. I was like, instead of breaking the world record, I visualized running a 449 mile. Basically, I, I visualized a 449.5. That was sort of how all of my, um, my visualization leading up to this event over, say, the, the preceding six, six weeks, four weeks, whatever it was, how it all sort of played out. Any thought that that visualization and the number you set, if we flip this a little bit, maybe is an artificial ceiling. Is there any thought that you look back on it and think I could have maybe gone 48 or 47 or was everything out there that day? It's such an interesting question because I feel like whenever you run your best, you always feel like you could have run better. Mm -hmm. Just, it's just like, I think the perfect race leaves you feeling like you had more in your tank. My other really fast time trial, um, in, I ran a 503 time trial in Boulder that gave me confidence that the world record was a possibility back in April. And I felt very similar throughout the, that time trial that, as I did in this race. Like I felt like it was really contained running. I wasn't overworking, but I was working hard. I kind of have the sense I could have gone a little faster. Um, but maybe not a lot faster, you know, like I said, my all out hundred meter fast as I can run hundred meters, probably like 16.25. Let's just say, um, the, the difference between my all out hundred meters pace and my, what I could stay in for a mile is less than six seconds per quarter. So there's not a big, you know, a big area of room for improvement in terms of what I ran, but I do feel like I, it felt so controlled looking back on it that I feel like, you know, maybe there was another half second or a second in there just with faster pacing. It wasn't going to come at the end though. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, you were kind enough to share with me your 2020 training log 
And a, a few takeaways immediately for me, and I, I want to get your thoughts on, uh, that I made some notes of. One, a good amount of, of hill work, hill sprint work, uh, as your power speed type stuff. Two, a lot of cross training. Three, not so much though on the long runs. And four, you had several minor injuries that led to some time working in the pool. Your thoughts on, on those points and how they uh, play into your training and, and what you considered to be the key pieces of putting together this mile effort. Yeah. Um, so let's start. Let's, if I forget some of those points, uh, remind me again. Sure. But, um, I don't do the long run because I just, the types of running injuries I've been dealing with as a master's athlete they're just not complementary to long running. Plantar fascia problems tend to be volume related or intensity related or both. And, and the long run just for me, it does, I don't feel like I get enough benefit to justify it given that it just introduces plantar fasciitis risk. I got rid of my plantar um, when I turned 50 because I made changes to my running form and because I had some PRP injections in my foot and I reinvented myself as a runner. And for about four or five years, I actually ran pretty plantar fasciitis pain-free, but I was very controlled and measured in what I was doing. And then I got, it, I got overexcited and I started doing longer training and then it came back and then I didn't, and then I had it, it was around for the next four or five years. Hmm. So it's not an injury that I take, take lightly. So, so I've just made the decision. I can get some of the benefit of long running just by like say long cycling, for example. Or once in a while, I'll just overdo it in pool running. I don't know. If, I really don't know if the long run benefits translate with those. But but I've just said, hey, you know, that's just one of my limitations as a master's athlete. The long run is not part of my part of my menu. Um, I have always uh, I've incorporated cross training as an absolute um, necessity. I didn't just think, hey, cross training is the most efficient way to be a master's runner. But for my challenges, it was allowing me to continue to stay cardiovascularly fit all the time. I read a book when I turned 40, and it was called Younger Next Year. And the big takeaway for me from that book was the importance of exercise and fitness as it relates to, call, call it preventing sort of an accelerated aging effect. And that just made sense to me. And I made the decision then. I said, you know what? I'm a runner, but if I'm hurt, I'm not going to just wait until I'm healthy. I'm going to just figure out other ways to stay fit. And I don't think I've not been fit since I've been 40. I've always been able to do something. And so it's cycling, it's elliptical training, it's pool running, it's, it's whatever. And I've just incorporated that into sort of my, uh, my ethos as an athlete. Um, it works for me. It, what I've learned from my own personal experiences is I don't think it sets me back too much to compete at a really high level, to have just this massive amount of cross training complementing the running that I do. When I'm at my best as a runner, though, I still have to be able to do the high intensity work. And I've been able to do that most of 2020 with the exception of the, the two bouts of uh, setbacks that were related to some hand, hamstring strains. But what I've also found is that if I get that type of an injury, it doesn't slow me down even from doing high intensity work. You can see from that log that like within two days of a hamstring injury, I'm back on my bike doing threshold work on my, um, on hills on my bike or high intensity pool running. It doesn't, those, um, 
you know, that muscle doesn't get too worked up by those activities. So, um, so it's been a really interesting kind of, I'll just call it set of insights that I've kind of gleaned from my own just approach to, to training. How did the pandemic help and hurt that training process? <laughs> What's super interesting to me about all this, um, this, uh, this year is that, you know, before the pandemic, I had a very varied calendar of competitive things I wanted to do. I had a mile in May, which sort of kicked off my interest in the mile. It was a road mile in California. And then I was going to go run a, a race called Dipsy, or at least I was going to try to enter a race called Dipsy because my dad had run it. And I thought that'd be kind of fun. And then I was going to do Boulder Boulder. I always do Boulder Boulder. And then I was going to do World Masters in Toronto. And there I was going to target probably the 5K and the 8K cross country because I've had historically very good success at those distances. Then the pandemic hit, everything got canceled. The race I had been training up to the pandemic was the mile. Um, so I just started doing some time trials and I was having so much fun and making such progress with it. That's just sort of became my thing. You know, it's just like, I don't, had there not been the pandemic, I would have run a probably a pretty good road mile in California, but then I would have switched to um, focusing on longer stuff. So that was, that's, you know, when I look back, it's kind of interesting to me that all of a sudden I have a world record in the mile. I do not think we'd be on this podcast having this conversation had the pandemic not happened. I'd have been a, a decent runner. I'd had some great races this year, but, but I wouldn't probably be in this situation. Yeah. Isn't that amazing uh, how things work themselves out? So the mile was not necessarily a target before and, and just the way you talked about it there and, and some of the joy it brought you both from the racing and it seems the training, is there a thought at taking another shot at your own record? You know, the hard thing about being a master is you get slower every year. And so, <laughs> you know, I'm probably going to be a little slower at 62 than I'm at 61. The, the race that intrigues me almost as much as the mile. I mean, I love the mile. And so it's kind of a two part answer here. Um, part of what I realize about myself as a master's athlete, what makes me the happiest is the fact that I can still run what feels like fast. Um, you know, I'm still running at my best. I'm still running under four minutes, 50 seconds for the mile. So that still feels like really good turnover. And there's a lightness to my being that I feel from an energy standpoint when I can run fast. It just makes me happy. I dread, I dread that when aging takes me to the point where I've lost that, you know, um, at this point, looking, looking forward, I still love the fact that I can run fast. So, so the mile has given me an incredible um, insight into myself about what really makes me happy as a runner. Um, and so I, I definitely want to continue to do the shorter, faster events. Um, I don't have the speed to move down to the 800, but the 1500 and the mile are great events for me. I believe that the 3000 should be a really good event for me too. You know, it's a little bit more endurance based than the, the mile, but you know, it, it has sort of the same requirement for, for speed that the mile has not quite as much, but um, that one seems like a, it would be a pretty interesting uh, race for me to go after. And when I say race to go after the world record is really fast for the, the three K it's nine twenty nine point four. It was actually just broken by somebody in Ireland. Um, I think last week, um, but it, but the person who broke it only took a 10th of a second off the record. So it wasn't like it, it got put into a different zip code. My mile time predicts I should be able to run a 933 um, 3K. But I have 
you know, so, so basically answer that, that question. I actually have a, a race on my calendar now in October, uh, mid-October to take a shot at a 3K on the track. Actually the same track. Well, first, you've got some good vibes going back to a site of such success. But second, I believe I looked up the American record at some similar distances in your age group. And I think it's around 10 minutes for a 3K. Is that correct? That's the American record. Right. Yeah. So, so you should have uh, certainly, uh, I know you want to take a shot at the world record, but you should have a great shot at, at, at least leaving with an American record on your ne- <laughs> next trip to Columbia. Yeah. If I don't get injured in, in my buildup to that, um, then I have a very high degree of confidence that I can, I can get the American record in the, uh, the 3K. But I'll train, for the, I'll train for the world record because that's, that's just a more exciting goal to shoot for. And then I'll be a super happy human being if I, don't, if I come up a bit short, but I still end up with an American record. Sure. So you mentioned there, if you don't get hurt on the buildup, we talked a little bit about some previous injuries. What do you believe are some keys to staying healthy? You mentioned the cross training in your case. Some, some other keys, though, that you believe have helped you stay more healthy uh, uh, that you think could be helpful for runner of any age? Yeah. Um, so I think cross training is a double-edged sword in terms of health. It, it's it's incredibly beneficial for um, kind of your my cardiovascular functioning, but the problem with that I've had with cross training, and I'm learning this as I get into my late 50s, early 60s, is that when I try to introduce high intensity running back into my routine, my body needs more time than I'm giving it to adapt to the new stresses, especially when I add the intensity. Like I don't ever get injured just on easy runs. I get injured when I train hard. Um, and I've had more calf and hamstring injuries over the last, say, 24 months than I've had the rest of my life and probably by an order of magnitude. And so, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about, you know, just some vulnerable parts of my body that I need to, if I want to continue this journey of trying to run fast as, a, as an aging master's, there are some things I'm just going to have to commit time to um, some muscle tendon attachment, you know, um, robustness, for example. So the things that I've added to my uh, routine really this year are I do eccentric stretching um, for my calves with weights. So I basically go up, there's a protocol called the Alfredson protocol. That's for sort of Achilles tendonitis. Um, but it's really good for calf. And I think it's also beneficial for my planner. So I feel like the whole chain of my backside chain is, is it just needs attention. And that's one of the, the key things I've added. And I haven't had a calf problem since I added that, that routine. Um, the hamstrings, I've, I've, I've bumped up the things I'm doing in terms of using um, the, what are those called? The big medicine balls. I, um, I do like, it's like being on a plank on your back and rolling the ball towards your butt. Yeah, like, like a BOSU ball. Yeah, exactly. I use a BOSU ball um, to strengthen my hamstring. And then I also do another exercise with a dumbbell that I think it's called a tippy bird, but I use about a 25 pound dumbbell. Um, and that strengthens that whole back and it strengthens and stretches it. So I've really focused on those two areas because those are the two areas that have been giving me problems over the last two years. So I have, I have confidence that adding those two things plus the cross training, um, you know, it's, it's going to set me up for a, a pretty good, um, 
protracted uh, stretch of running. The one, the one uh, I I got through five by five by one k yesterday morning, and that was the that was the last two hamstring injuries were on my fifth one k. <laughs> so the fact that I got through it, I was like, yes. <laughs> As you described some of the issues that that can come with cross training, if you're not doing those other uh, maintenance pieces that you just described. I, I thought of having heard the analogy that the runner coming back from injury who does a ton of cross training, who maybe hits the bike and swims really hard, but isn't doing much of anything else. It's like dropping a, a huge, powerful engine into an otherwise tiny car like all of a sudden your 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 pinto now has this v8 in it that's ready to run <laughs> but, but the car can't handle it right and right. It, it it sounds like you're doing the other things for maintenance for the entire car to make sure the entirety of it operates well and together um, yeah, I'm I'm trying to fireproof the back of my Pinto before I drop <laughs> that big engine into it. <laughs> that's good advice. And that's a good analogy, by the way. I, I, I had never heard that, but that's exactly, that's an that's a incredibly good descriptor of what the issue is. I, I, I ratchet, I go from mostly cross-training because I've come off an injury to now introducing running and my cardio fitness is so good. It just allows me to run faster than my body has really been adapted to support. And so it is, that's a, it's a great analogy. Any other on that note, general advice for masters athletes who want to compete at a high level? So if I could run more, I would run more. I think there's, you know, if I could run six days a week, like, you know, some of the, the top people and even my age group, I think that would be my preference because I love the sport so much, but I can't, or, I just am not willing to risk it, just given my history. So I guess the advice I would give anybody is, is don't underappreciate the complementary nature of cross-training to your primary sport, whatever your endurance sport is. I think that, you know, if I think about it scientifically, and I'm not, I'm not, not trying to present myself as an expert here, but I think that there are some unique benefits you get as an athlete from cross-training that only running doesn't give you um, your body's ability to handle I'll call it all the byproducts of sort of you know what happens when you start to acidify your tissues start to acidify you have you have muscle tissues that have the capacity to absorb some of that stuff um, because you've trained them I do high intensity on a bike I do high intensity on elliptical I do high intensity in the pool and I, and I manage the total amount of high intensity I do. I don't overdo high intensity, don't get me wrong, but you know, maybe three, three sessions every eight days on average if I'm training for something, two running and, and one high intensity cross train. But, but I think there's huge value to that, to that cross training as, as a runner or as an endurance athlete, I don't care what your sport is. So you, you can get pretty close, if not all the way to your competitive ceiling, even if you're, if you're restricted to limited miles. Um, and so that would be my advice. Don't, don't give up on it because you're, you know, it, it's easy to freak out when you read what some other people in your age group do. It's just like, holy moly, there's a, there's a guy um, in Ireland who just broke the M60 uh, half marathon record. He ran 71 minutes and he's a former Olympian and he runs 120 miles a week in his um, marathon buildup. And I couldn't ever 
there's no point in my entire life where I could do 120 miles of, of running per week on a consistent basis without having many things go wrong. <laughs> but, you know, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I just broke a world record for the mile on 25 miles a week when I'm healthy. Um, so, you know, the miles are, can be beneficial, especially I think at those longer endurance events, but at the same time, you can come pretty close to what your, 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 your capacity as an athlete on way, way fewer way fewer miles than the 60 to 100 mile a week that you, you you know get intimidated by when you read about them yeah there are many roads to success in endurance sports you exactly. have to be committed to believing in the path that you're following we see research studies of all kinds of different potential performance enhancers but one thing that we see time and time again as having a huge effect on our ability to perform is competition. Mm -hmm. And you have had to do a lot of this training without that incredibly critical variable of competition. And for example, you ran a, a great altitude adjusted uh, mile. You've been in virtual races people all over the country are doing this kind of stuff, right? And we're, right. we're getting out on the track and we're just, we're running the laps and, and trying to do our best. What role has that had in the pursuit of a record? And now looking forward, knowing, okay, you have a 3K in October on the schedule and maybe there's more coming next year. We have potentially more opportunities to race. What could introducing competition you think do for you and how are you looking forward to that in the future? <laughs> So it's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, I started off this year, 2020, I ran the U.S. cross-country championships in San Diego. I was coming off a lot of injuries in 20, 2019. Um, so I would say I was at about 80, 85% of, of my capacity. Um, but I, I got second in my age group at that race, but I loved the competitive environment. It was a big cross-country race, tons of people, right? Um, that's the last really competitive race I have felt and even though I've done, I don't want to say I did nine races or time trials this year, but every one of them felt more like a time trial. Even the races felt like time trials because none of them was I in any kind of a competitive environment where I was feeding off anybody around me. The Music City Distance Carnival was a race. There were two guys quite a bit ahead of me and everybody else was sort of um, using, you know, it was kind of pacing off of me. I led that group and ended up third overall. So um it didn't it felt like a that felt the most like a race but even there i wasn't really in that kind of close proximity to other athletes to really feed off of All, everything else has has had very much either time trial feeling or just solo solo efforts um, against the clock feeling so i agree with you i i think that racing brings out um an extra energy uh for competing at a high level and I think it will benefit me if, if I get that chance. Having said that, if it's a 1,500 meters and it's against, let's say, the other best 1,500 meter racers in my age group in the world, my strategy is going to be go hard from the start and I'll probably be leading because there's, I'm not going to beat anybody in a kicking race. There's, you know, when I watch the Olympics, when, when Centrowitz ran, ran that 1,500 and, you know, everybody looks like they're jogging for you know, 1200. And then it's just, just all out craziness for the last 400. Um, those, those types of uh, 
strategies, they don't suit an athlete like myself. I have to just push a really hard pace. I have to rely on the fact that I have great endurance um, and enough speed to run fast at that distance. So, but even there, it'll, it'll, it'll be super good for me. Know thyself. <laughs> um, I'll get you out of here with three kind of bigger picture uh, questions uh, just about mm-hmm. the sport and life in general. First, what do you think is the value uh, for you or anyone out there listening to continually chasing goals and fitness regardless of age? Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a big question. Um, I, I, I have blended fitness and quality of life and goals all into the same, I'll call it mix, the same bucket, if you will. Um, I believe it's, it's a, important to me at a personal level that I live a healthy fit lifestyle um, that affords me the opportunity to do the other things I love as long as I possibly can. I love to ski. I love to play golf. I love to ride my bike. Um, love to hike with my family. And I don't want to lose opportunity to do those great things prematurely. I want to be able to do them as long as I can at a high level as you know, just as far out into the future as I can see. And then when I'm forced to stop, I'm going to stop, but I'm going to hope it's, you know, it's going to be at the end of the road. So that's always been a huge driver for me. It drives my nutritional decisions. It drives the reason that I, I train every day, almost whether I can, um, whether I'm healthy as a runner or not. Um, And then, and then I use goals as a way to, that's sort of like, I'll just call it direct my energies uh, towards things that I know um, are going to be kind of cool things to experience and, you know, try to chase outcomes that I think would make me feel really good about myself. Um, I love to set hard goals. Like I don't set a goal to run something that I know is in my wheelhouse. I set a goal to do something that's kind of crazy good, but still just on the edge of possibility for me as a, as a human. So I don't set goals that are so stupidly fast. Like I wouldn't set a goal to run a 430 mile. That would be silly. Um, But I'll set a goal to be on the podium at a world championship or to win an event at a world championship. I'll make my goal that. And then the interesting thing about the goal is, you know, that, that whole process for me is visualizing it, getting excited about how it'll feel if I accomplish that result. Then it starts to lead me down that path of, well, what do I have to do to prepare for this to be a reality? What does that look like? You know, what, what changes do I have to make in what I'm doing? What things do I need to do from a training perspective? It, it causes me to, to be more disciplined about eating, about drinking, about sleeping. And all those things just sort of complement that other idea about have, living kind of a, a healthy lifestyle. So I'm always sticking goals into, into my, my routine. And they help me in some ways. And at times, they probably set me back a little bit. But, but overall, I just I value the process. I bet. I accomplish one out of every three big goals I set as an athlete and the other two, I'll come up short. I get hurt in the buildup or whatever. But when I hit them, man, that's just a, that's a surreal feeling like, like breaking a world record in the mile. That was just incredible. And that was a, a goal that built on other goals. You know, my original goal was I just thought, Hey, maybe I can run under five minutes as a 60 year old. That would be so cool. Right. I thought about that when I was in my mid fifties and just kind of tucked it away as something when I hit 60 that was going to show up on my radar. And it was the fast time trial that said, whoa, not only do you have a chance to go under five minutes, but that's not a big leap 
from where your performance is at to, to go chase a world record. You ran at Colorado. You've been there now for decades. Dan's got his Colorado Buffalo shirt on right now during the interview. What's kept you there for all these years and that, that running culture there? What does that mean to you? Um, Boulder is an amazing city. You know, it's got uh, everything that I love. I'm a, I'm a fairly liberal person. It's a college town. Those usually go hand in hand. It backs up to the mountains. It gives me opportunity to trail run. It gives me opportunity to hike. It gives me opportunity to ski. Um, it's got all the energy that comes with a college town in terms of like, you know, interesting uh, things that go on during a year, conference on world affairs, um, basketball, football, you know, just, I just love Boulder. It's, um, it's got a ton of open space. It's got great interconnected bike paths that you can get everywhere in this town on your bike faster than you get on a car for the most part. Um, so I've just loved Boulder. I, I loved Boulder before I, I was even serious about, um, you know, anything to do with master's athletics. I've just been really drawn to this area as a, as a quality place for me to live that, that sort of checks so many boxes that are important to me. The interesting thing about Boulder too is to your point, it, you know, it's over the years, it's world-class athletes come here, live here, train here. Um, they don't usually compete here because the altitude sort of isn't that uh, beneficial from a, you know, performance standpoint. But other than that, it's, it's kind of neat to be in that environment too. And in my case now, it's kind of fun to be a person who's getting some attention and recognition for my own successes, even though it's, you know, definitely well into the master's years. So yeah, it's, it's a special place that way. Like that, uh, I showed you that training log, you know, that, that last hamstring injury I had leading up to uh, Music City Distance Carnival. I went over to one of the local tracks, Platt, and I was, my, my workout was um, going to be uh, three sets of four by 200. And of course, Dathan Ritzenhine and uh, Joe Klecker and some of their other athletes were all out at the track that day. And I just got a little over enthusiastic. I kind of remembered <laughs> how fast I used to be, not how fast I should be. Um, I think I was just doing my four, my two hundreds, probably a second or two faster than I should have been running them, and that's when it went on the on the last set. So it's like, oh man. <laughs> I, I can't blame you. I think that we would all, in that situation, want to uh, want to strut a little bit. So right. yeah, yeah. Final thing, just the the biggest lesson that you can take away from a lifetime in running. Your perspective that, that I've gotten to hear today is truly enlightening and really inspiring. When you look back at the, uh, the, the body of work, the, the biggest lesson that you take away from all this experience. You know, what, I, what I've learned about a lifetime of running, I, I didn't appreciate it fully when I was in my 20s. I was talented enough to walk on and make the traveling squads at the University of Colorado. We had a very good, you know, distance programs even back then. Um, and so I, I've always had some ability for the sport, but I kind of just grinded through it as a sport. And I don't think I ever really appreciated what it was, had the potential to give me as, as a, just call it a, you know, a thing that I do as something that's kind of central to, you know, who I've become. My, my appreciation of, um, persisting, you know, working through injury, focusing on goals. It's just those things have helped me in all aspects of my life. Um, I was a very successful entrepreneur and I attribute a lot of 
my business successes to the the lessons I learned as an athlete, as a distance runner and somebody, you know, who wanted to even back then achieve at a high level. And the other thing that I can say uh, as a, after a lifetime of, of running and still doing it is I just realized how much I love this sport, how much passion I still have for it. The, the desire to compete at 60 isn't a lesser thing than it is at 20. Um, it's, you know, a lot of people I think move on from it because they think they just need to, but I don't really get that. I think it's uh, that, that entire cycle of setting goals, pushing yourself through training, getting excited about an event, building up to the event, competing in an event, having all of that energy that comes with competition, and then having all the things that come after it. That whole cycle is fantastic. I don't, I don't know why anybody would, um, I shouldn't say I don't, I, the, the, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is there's a richness that comes with that. That's every bit as relevant as a 60 year old master than I ever felt as a, as a 20 or, you know, a teen. And I hope I can continue to do it for the foreseeable future because it's just a wonderful sport um, in, in context also with a wonderful community. Yeah, that is well said, Dan. We look forward to seeing what you do here in October in the 3K. Um, yeah, awesome. Excited. We'll be cheering for you. Dan King, age group world record holder in the mile at four minutes and 49 seconds. It's been a joy talking to you, Dan. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, Travis, I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you so much for having me on your, on your show and um, I hope we can stay in touch.